Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. Thanks, Mike. Mike has read a text for troubled times. I can't help but hear a text about people feeling dry and getting new breath and realize the irony of I'm overcoming pneumonia. I'm feeling a little dry and out of breath myself. When I agreed to speak, I thought I'd be over this. Never had pneumonia before, so I guess you're going to have to suffer along with me. You're already going to have to, I guess, one way or another. You're just there's just more layers to it, really. Well, um, thanks for being here. I want to take you back uh, a number of years to uh, an important moment in my life. My first day as a pastor, my first church, my first day as lead pastor. This was after several months of applying around resume after resume, each church turning me down. I must have applied to 50 churches. They didn't want to take on a doctoral student. Apparently I came off as nerdy. (laughs) They wanted somebody always with more experience. Life was so uncertain back then. I was just beginning my dissertation for my doctorate at University of Toronto. My contract as a coordinator of a soup kitchen, drop-in center who uh, served homeless and uh, those in poverty in downtown Toronto had ended due to funding cuts to the city. My wife and I had just had our second child, Emerson, a few months prior. We had bought a home a year ago and we were now realizing that now we're gonna have to sell it. My contract as an intern for church planting in another Baptist denomination had come to an unfortunate end. The denominational leaders found out that I was in favor of women in ministry. And for that particular Baptist denomination, such a belief was beyond the pale of orthodoxy, as they informed me. I had to decide that in good conscience, then I'm not going to just shut up about that. And... um, I can't continue on in a denomination that takes those kinds of stances. And so I had to leave the church that my grandfather helped found. (laughs) When you leave a church family that raised you, it feels like you're leaving Christianity itself. And when that own church family attacks you over your views, views that you really are convicted are biblical. If you've ever faced a similar situation to that, it can make you wonder certain things. Does the church have a future? And if it has a future, does it have me in it? And so in all that uncertainty, uh, I applied to the Canadian Baptist denomination. And a 120-year-old, the First Baptist Church of Sudbury, hired me. They wanted a young pastor. And I was young. (laughs) (laughs) I say was there. First Baptist Church of Sudbury was a little church four hours north of Toronto, a place that I had only visited once when I was in high school, in the wintertime, and it got down for several months 
down to minus 40 in the winter. I remember sitting there and spitting and my spit frozen air before it landed, before it hit the ground. And I remember thinking to myself in high school, who would live here? <laughs> and this was the church that voted to hire me. I remember walking into my office that first day on the job, and there was a package there left by the interim pastor, who was a retired megachurch pastor from the town. He left a report on my desk, and it was a church growth chart. He charted the birth of the church, uh, its peak years, what that looked like, and then stages of decline, what that looked like, twilight years, and eventually death. He had taken a big red magic marker and circled death on there. <laughs> And if that wasn't enough, there were like arrows. <laughs> and he said, the church is here, just, you know, in case that, in case you didn't get that. <laughs> this was a church I found that had experienced a decade of turmoil, largely through no fault of its own. One pastor ran off with the deacon's wife. Another pastor uh, experienced a lot of instability and divided the church. <clears throat> I remember the summer that I started, the attendance was less than a dozen. I remember being invited out that first week to the local Christian radio station because I was the new pastor in town. The owner of the radio station asked me in that polished, pious voice radio personalities always have, so when did you feel called by God to minister in Sudbury? I don't remember what I said. I remember wanting to say, I have no idea. I don't know at all. After applying around to so many churches, getting my hopes up, and being so frustrated to have one church finally say, we'll hire you, I just went, okay. <laughs> Nothing spiritual about it. The same week, I was invited out for coffee by one of the pastors in town, again, since I was new to town. Over coffee, it became increasingly apparent that this was more like an interview to make sure I was biblical enough for this person. And it became increasingly awkward in the conversation as it seemed that I wasn't for him. I don't remember what we exactly talked about, what that particular opinion was. I've come to learn that I have so many controversial opinions I've lost count. Oops. And whatever that was though for him, he just turned to me and he said, First Baptist is going to be ill-served because of you and your ideas. Thanks. <laughs> See you later. Real encouraging. It was not the most encouraging first week on the job. As I reflect on how I moved my family 400 kilometers away to a small church where the members of which were mostly twice and in some cases three times my age, I kept asking myself, does this church have a future? Does the church have a future? And what's my future in the church? This is a question I think a lot of us are asking in this time of the aftermath of the pandemic. Financially, the pandemic has rocked Canada. The Toronto Star has estimated the pandemic has cost Canadians $1.5 billion every day of the pandemic. And I think we get a sense from people, we're worried, is the future a time of scarcity? Is there going to be enough to go around? And yet it's the human cost that is most important. John Hopkins reports that there has been 460 million cases of the virus globally. Six million deaths. Six billion. 
Canada has seen 37,000 deaths, and we call that being fortunate. That's really just so, so tragic. Many of these individuals are seniors in nursing homes, long care, uh, those in long-term care facilities, but make no mistake, this virus has been just so unpredictable in its deadliness. I heard of one classmate of mine from college a year ago, a woman my age with a child. She got the virus and she went to bed and she didn't wake up. I remember just being in shock for a couple days after that. And for many, it's that kind of emotional toll that the virus has enacted. Feelings of isolation and burnout and anxiety. Churches have felt this as their pastors have worked so hard to put services online and adapt to new health standards. All our churches have felt distant from their communities and each other. They feel obstructed and frustrated. Many pastors I know have worked even harder during the pandemic than regularly, all to find that their attendance has gone down with people not returning after everything has been online for a time. And that's, I can only imagine, it's just so frustrating. As we look out at a post-pandemic world, as it goes to endemic stage, whatever that entails, I think we're not out of the woods yet. It feels like we're surveying the wreckage of the last two years. It feels like we're survivors of a battle. In my reading of scripture, I recently came along this passage by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet and a priest that proclaimed messages and visions from God 600 years before Christ. Ezekiel watched a foreign empire, Babylon, come and destroy his home. The Jewish armies were, de uh, were decimated by a cruel military superpower. The people were brought into exile. Ezekiel went with them and served as a priest and a teacher in a small expatriate community living in exile. Such hopelessness and insecurity can make our own situation seem rather insignificant. We've had it, most of us, pretty good these la the last two years. But then again, we too feel these senses of dislocation and insecurity and uncertainty. And when we come to scripture, the spirit of God animates these ancient words with something to say to us today, something I think we all need to hear. It is in this context that Ezekiel has a vision of an aftermath of a battle filled with corpses and dry bones. It's a vision that is symbolic, as he explains, but he names the spiritual reality that God's people are in. It's a feeling of a state of being defeated. And yet the Spirit of God is not. God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel replies in the most human way possible. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the future. But you, God, do. You know. <clears throat> And he's given this vision. He sees the dry bones being raised up. The breath of God, the breath of life that animates all humanity and all living things on this earth. This breath is now causing death to be reversed. To hope to be come back and new life appear. New creation. God says to these bones that they are the house of Israel. This is God's people who have said our strength is gone. Our hope is lost. We feel cut off and separated. And he says to them, I will restore you. I will bring you home. I will put my spirit in you and, re and renew you. And I think God is saying this to us today. 
It can feel like the church in Canada has lost a battle. Or maybe that we're just scraping by. So many of us have spent the last two years feeling stressed and isolated, cut off. Our bones feels dried up. Our hopes in ministry feel lost. And yet the Spirit of God is not defeated. God is still God. God, the Lord Almighty, the God of all possibilities, the God whose plans are always good, the God whose promises are always sure. Our God's will and his plans, his promises, are to bring salvation and forgiveness and healing, life and love and liberation to every human being. And this has not changed. It has not stopped because it cannot be stopped. God's kingdom is still coming on earth so that one day it will reflect what is in heaven, as we just prayed. And we know this definitively because this vision is a prefigure, a prefigure to what happens to God's son, Jesus Christ. When the forces of darkness, of death and despair came against Jesus, Jesus gave himself up as a ransom to liberate us from these things, dying on a cross, a God-forsaken death. God became a cursed corpse. By this we know that God is with us. God became in the valley of the dry bones. In that time of hopelessness, in the time that we might think that the plan of God got foiled, on the third day, the tomb was found empty. Jesus was risen. And as we think about the future as Christians and as church leaders, we have to remember that we stand on this. We are the body of Christ. And while it has been bruised and beaten and dried up, the Spirit can raise the body to new life in surprising and unexpected ways. This is our hope in such a time of death and despair. If we remember this, we remember God's faithfulness. If we ask this question, what does the future have in store? Our answer has to be the same as Ezekiel's. Lord God, you know. We trust you and your way. We know this because you're sovereign and we know this because you're good. We know this that you make promises that you keep. I say these things because these are the words I needed to be told all those years ago. When I sat there in my office staring at that wretched, wretched document, <laughs> I thought to myself, I can do something about this. I can change that. I thought to myself, all I need to do is believe hard enough, pray hard enough, work hard enough. Faith isn't a magical formula, though, to control God or the future. Sometimes we forget that. I became obsessed over the next few years with starting programs and fundraisers and advertisements. Many of these had very little effect. People from larger churches just came to them like it was a free service and then went back to their larger churches. It did nothing to reach those who were really, uh, really not Christian at all. And after two years of doing that, I just felt burnt out and dried up. I really wanted to quit, to be honest with you. It was at that moment I realized that I don't know the future and what the future of this church will be. God only knows. And if the church is going to last maybe another five years of sustainability, I don't know. But what I do know is that I had to be faithful at that very moment of what God was calling this church to be, no matter what. The church was located in the town of Garson, just outside of Sudbury. 
It was located out there in the 70s from the downtown because they thought that this new suburb was going to be the next up-and-coming neighborhood. And then the city zoned it to basically be the armpit of the city. <laughs> Supplemented income housing. It basically pushed the poor of the city towards that neighborhood. I remember all the stores in town had graffiti all over it. And police cruisers would always be making stops, going on patrol. One day a guy called and wanted a ride to church. And he lived in a one-bedroom apartment around the corner from me. In a really busted up apartment ran by a slumlord who uh, intimidated his, his uh, uh, tenants all the time. As I got to know him, this person faced a lot of mental health challenges. He attended a lot of other churches. He made it through a number of them. And it looked like they just viewed him as a burden and ignored him. And he went on. Other churches wanted to grow the church using easier and richer sheep. But this, I felt, was the person that God had given us. Our family of faith. And so we did our best, and soon I found out he had friends. I put out a sign in his building that if he needed a ride to the food bank on a Tuesday afternoon, I'd drive them, because it was at the other end of Garson, and sometimes those packages were heavy, and I'd invite them out for coffee after. I realized that Sudbury was not an unevangelized town, it was a, or an unchurched town, as it were. It was a dechurched town. What does that mean? I never had to convince people what the gospel was to tell them about Jesus as if that was a new concept. They had heard it all before. What I really had to convince them the, was, uh, of was, was that I cared about them and that the church cared because so many pastors they had met didn't. Many would ask me, are you just being nice to me to get me to come to your church? And I would try to say to them, I believe worshiping in community is a part of a healthy spirituality. It's what God wants us to do. But make no mistake, I'll always be there for you, even if you've never set foot in my church. And that reassurance went a long way. I realized in those experiences that if the church has a future, it will have to learn how to take up its cross in a new way. The church must die to self. It must lay to rest its obsession with money that causes it to see the poor as worthless. It must lay to rest its expectations of what a successful Christian must look like which causes so many to feel like they don't belong in the family of God. Whether it's the mentally ill, those who face addictions, those whose love lives and sexualities are a bit messy and complicated. The church must take up its cross in a new way, embracing the discomfort the Spirit is calling us into. And it must be said then, if we want to see realities of resurrection, the Spirit moving and breaking in and causing new life, it'll only happen when the church is ready to give up itself all it is and what it can be. And I say can be here because so often we go on mission as a church for the future of the church. But what that really means is that we're doing this just to keep what is ours. And when we do that, we ignore those who don't matter to our budget, and to our building maintenance, or our membership lists. More scary is that we'll be vulnerable to politicians who promise power to the church when we feel like we're losing ours. We will make the church and its mission all about us. The future offers no guarantees. I know I constantly worried, will we have enough money to pay the bills? Will we have to amalgamate at some point with another church? The promise of God in this passage is that God will do wonderful things in the Valley of Dry Bones. But we can't turn that, into, that promise into yet another formula that bypasses risk 
and genuine sacrifice. It just doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. As I said before, I would take guys to the food bank, and if they're up for it, I would invite them out for coffee. <laughs> so three guys came out one day. One was that guy that I already mentioned who started attending our church, and he invited his two friends. And there we were sitting in Tim Hortons. One guy I realized in hindsight was not entirely sober. The other two became very agitated. They mentioned later that they were on new meds. The two guys began to argue. I remember them arguing about something so, so pointless. They started arguing, who does Snoop Dogg remind you of? <laughs> to which one guy adamantly and seriously argued that Snoop Dogg was named after Snoopy from Peanuts. I don't think that's the case. But he was quite certain about this. And the other guy, shall we say, strongly objected. As I sat there, and the other guy just sat there with a, a kind of dopey grin on his face, all of a sudden I saw a chair go across the room. And the two got up in each other's faces and started screaming at each other. And I remember just sitting to my, myself going, what's happening? <laughs> That's it, all of you are banned from the store, yelled the manager. This very stern lady, shoot us out. And then the two went in because they, they felt rather ashamed. And then came back out. Um, they had a look on their face in their shame, like, this is the moment Pastor Spencer's done with us. We crossed the line, and other pastors have moved on for a lot less. There's just no point in this kind of risk or this kind of trouble, getting banned from stores and things like that. And then I said, okay, I'll, maybe I'll talk to the manager. And I went in and I said, okay, uh, this is the only spot these guys have in town. Can you maybe give them a break? She was going to call the police, and I talked her out of it. And then she said, I want to hear an apology from them. And so they came in, and I went out, and I stood next to the third. The manager came out and just looked at me and said, so they tell me you're their pastor. What kind of church are you running? One that runs on the grace of God, ma'am. <laughs> That's what I managed to get out of me at the time. And she looked at me. <laughs> Huh, you take care of those boys, keep them out of trouble. I thought to myself, well, I'll try. It turns out in that moment, that very undignified moment, <coughs> that, led, <coughs> that led those guys and their friends to trust me in a new way. They knew I just wasn't interested in finding the next safe person to attend their church. And this story develops, if you'll allow me to tell it. As I got to know one of the guys, it was a guy in his early 20s, a poor kid, and he had endured some of the worst things this life has to offer. Terrible abuse, abandonment, and he was just, he was deeply erratic. It didn't take long to know that it was just the presence in him. His soul was filled with that chaos of a lethal mix of hate and hurt. And I would come to his apartment and check on him from time to time. He was on welfare, but there was a strong possibility of it running out. And he was always looking for a job. He was the same height as me, so I gave him some of my dress clothes, and we practiced interviews. He applied all over the place, and each time an employer would just look at him and hear how he talked, and they, he would just go on to the next person. It didn't matter that this kid was willing and able and desperate. He applied there and, and everywhere, and he just got more and more downcast. He did a stint in the hospital, and when he got out, I met up with him again, and he was just in a really bad state of mind. 
I asked him, what do you believe in in all this? What do you trust? You trust God's love and his forgiveness. I thought this was kind of the pastorly thing to say. He turned to me and he said that he admitted his mind was so erratic, so faulty, he just resolved to stop believing anything one day. Oh, he figured his brain was so unreliable, every time he tried to believe things, he ended up believing silly things that got him in even more trouble. And so one day he just felt it was safer to just believe nothing at all. Okay. I tried to offer some words of encouragement, but I was really taken back by that. How do you get somebody to believe in Jesus who doesn't believe in believing things at all? How do you get somebody to, to, to do that? It's me, pastor man, who's, it's my job to get you to believe things. And I went home that day particularly distraught. I remember praying, God, how can, how can a person like that be reached? How can a person like that be discipled? What place could a person have like that in the church? God, you've got to reach that person, because if the gospel means anything, it has to mean somebody, it means something to somebody like that. The gospel's good news to everybody, especially a desperate, troubled young man who needs more than anybody hope. My prayers took on a tone of frustration and disappointment for a time. A little while later, I came by his apartment, and I found him in the apartment's communal kitchen. He turned to me and he said, Spencer, I was just sitting in my apartment, and I was just ready to end it all. I just felt so worthless. And then he showed up. I went, who showed up? He just pointed up. He said, in this dark moment, he heard a distinct voice say to him, your life is worth something to me, audibly. God found him in his dark valley. Spencer, I don't know what I am, but I know I ain't an atheist. <laughs> To that day, I was still corresponding with this guy. God surprised me that day. God surprises us most often when we're ready to be the gospel for the broken, and when, more importantly, we're willing to be broken for the gospel. As it turns out, a group started attending each week, and it was these moments that I know I saw the church, what it can be, a place for the outcasts where they're welcomed, a place where the hungry are fed, a place where the brokenhearted are comforted. We need to remind ourselves of these stories. Because let's face it, everywhere we're hearing it, these awful stories of racism in the residential schools, stories of bigotry and abuse, stories of apathy and irrelevance, where churches just don't seem to care about what's right and sharing God's love, it can make all of us just feel so discouraged. It was pastoring this little church that renewed my confidence in the church, a church that wasn't a building, but a family of disciples, imperfect but willing to bear one another's burdens, to live like a family, but most importantly, to be a family to those who don't have any family. It's a beautiful irony that church growth never happened when I was really obsessed about growing the church. The church did start growing in this particular story when, it, when we resolved to be there for those in need in our communities even if it cost us the church as we knew it. The church will only find itself if it's willing to die to itself. It will only rise if we are willing to dwell in those valleys of dry bones. Let's pray. God of hope and new life, <coughs> we praise you that you are faithful. 
You have been faithful through the years to your church, and so we trust you with our present and our future. Lord, we don't know what the future holds, and we have seen so much discouragement these days. God, let us take that and trust it to you. Lord, teach us new ways to trust your spirit. Inspire us in new ways to take up the cross. Empty us into this world so that we can be with those who need to hear about you. Permit us to see moments of resurrection, moments of seeing your kingdom breaking in. Prepare our hearts for what you want us to do, what you're doing in us, and what you want to see happen in our communities. We pray longing for the salvation of all people and the restoration of all things. And may it begin today with the renewal of our hearts, us in this room. These things we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.